Welcome back to the Higher Gear CIO podcast. I'm Kelly Kierens, president of Celtic QA Solutions. In this part of our series, we will jump back into the conversation on the future of work with Walt Carter, Chief Digital Officer and CIO for Homestar Financial, and Dr. Ben Kaczynski, professor at the Goizeta Business School at Emory University. A few years ago, quite some years ago now, I was approached, uh, a number of us were approached by SAP. And SAP was saying that, you know, a challenge, not only the systems, but the quote, best practices were 20, sometimes 30 years old. And uh, the the crime that we often find is there is no documentation for some of this that they had. So how do we evolve it? And I worked on... uh, uh, inverse compilers and decompilers a long, 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 long time ago. And so we looked at some of those principles as to how we could take that code. You're not going to analyze it and describe the logic of that code, but uh, can I use tools to try to identify and reveal logic that's embedded in that code so that we can bring it forward? Uh, in, into that. So the, the, the challenge is not that we just uh, hardwire it, it's that we don't remember what we hardwired afterwards. And so sometimes we need uh, tools that uh, to help us do that kind of thing or replace it. I, I remember when I, I got to town uh, here in Atlanta, you know, I was, I was brought down from, uh, I was with TRW at the time, uh, working on Y2K like everybody was in the late 90s. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, they had a, a big customer, uh, you know, a, a nationally known airline located in Atlanta that, uh, that needed some Y2K help. And so, you know, I, I came down and, and we started looking at exactly that problem. And, and frankly, we were pulling COBOL programmers out of retirement, but not just COBOL, natural, pick. Uh, I mean, there was a whole lot of really sophisticated code that was undocumented at the time. And, uh, you know, I don't know if they've corrected that. Let's assume they have. Uh, but they're still using a bunch of that same code today. And, uh, you know, and it's because of that problem of it's so darn expensive to move away from it. Uh, it, it you know, it, re- it really does work. It's really well written. But, but because it wasn't, un- it, it wasn't documented well, we had to go find the guys and gals that wrote it and bring them back out of retirement so they could help us understand where the date routines were. Uh, and they were hidden all over the place. And they're not obvious when you get into mainframe systems. You know, there's, there's all kinds of little strange places to hide that stuff. And, and we're very happy that none of the planes uh, fell out of the sky that night uh, at the uh, turn of the millennium uh, as well. As we look at that, that uh, code and uh, we, we try to pack, isolate it, Pac-Man it uh, down, uh, isolate it, put it into less trusted uh, gateways. And, uh, and uh, so we work our systems away. People tend to think of it, you know, non-tech people tend to think of it as where you just throw the whole thing away and get something new. Well, you, you can't always do that. And so you have to deal. The military is very good at dealing with the uh, new old, as well as the, the, while they foster the new new, 
the new old is uh, probably your best uh, profitable benefit for uh, leveraging your systems and how you manage the old is, uh, is a core skill towards maintaining uh, stable operations. I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, I spent, I spent uh, four years working on Minuteman 3 ICBMs up in North Dakota uh, as, a, as a young uh, lieutenant in the Air Force. Uh, and I flew on EC-135s, uh, you know, out of SAC headquarters and, and Ellsworth Air Force Base in Rapid City, South Dakota, doing airborne command and control. The missiles that I worked on and those airframes that I flew on were all born before I was. Uh, and, and our ability in the military to constantly upgrade and move those systems into the future is really remarkable in a lot of ways. I mean, those missiles... When, when I was working on them in the mid 80s, late 80s, were better than they were when they were put in brand new. They were much better and much more accurate. Uh, and those, those airframes that I rode in, you know, they were safer actually when I rode in them than when they first went into the sky before my birth. Uh, and so, you know, again, cause we have, we have the ability to modernize. Uh, we also did some, something else really cool. My last assignment was, uh, you know, going up to, Canadian NORAD to help the, uh, the Canadian Air Force understand how to use uh, and, and, uh, and host fighter packages from our U.S. Air Force, mostly Guard and Reserve units, under the NORAD Treaty. In the event that you know, the, the World War III kicked off and they came over the poles at us, our plan was to you know, put fighter jets up into forward operating locations all along, along the, the coast of Alaska and Canada mm -hmm. to fight them back. And, uh, you know, and so... We know in, in our Air Force, for instance, that every time you fly a jet, it breaks. We have lots and lots of you know, evidence and, and you know, information that shows that that has been our history. Every time we fly one, we break. So back a, a bunch of years ago, we said, you know what? Every time we fly and it breaks, we have to have a maintenance crew on the ground and, and we got to fix that thing before we can fly another story. I wonder what would happen if we modularize all of these different components so that we could just walk in with a new component, take the old one out, pop a new one in and, and have it all work. Right. So this is back to that integrate indirect integration model in a way. Right. Was let's just let's let's compartmentalize to the degree we can modularize to the degree we can and create the ability for us to always have working equipment from the lab be able to come to the airplane and put it in and replace the, the bad parts so we can get it back up in the air, fly, fight, and win like we're supposed and, to. And, and it's not only replacement, it's part of the evolutionary process too. I'm going to evolve those elements as I'm able to uh, replace them. I, I went on uh, some of the maiden flights of the, uh, uh, the F-22 Raptors not flying the plane because they were one seaters and they figured it was a $262 million suicide trip for to put me in <laughs> into the plane. So right. I was in the fuel in the fuelers in your C-130 and uh, uh, fueling them <clears throat> and over Tyndall and then going over to Langley and looking at the maintenance operations for uh, for the 22s. Uh, remarkable principles changing too, as you start looking at uh, the flight, the command and control structure, and the uh, the pilot issue. And I, 
often ask my students when you walk into walk up to a uh, a car right now and you open the door and you see there's no driver there you hesitate to get in at what point will that change when you open the car door and you see a driver there and you say oh crap should i get in this vehicle because we kill 37,000 of our citizens every year in the automobile. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's down from uh, 43, but uh, 1.3 million worldwide. And when do we start letting go of decision rights and authority and trusting? And I asked them uh, about who do you want to land your, your plane? Do you want the avionics system to land the plane or do you want the pilot to? when um, and did the space shuttle when uh, we didn't let the pilots land the space shuttle it was landed by the avionics systems as well and so at what point are we starting to move rights and authorities to systems we trust more so than the historic perception that we need a um, constant command from the human uh, in uh, in doing that, so we're allocating rights and authorities in in many different ways and accelerating that. I think I think you're onto something there. You know, and I love the the notion of letting go. I, I've thought for years it's more that there's been a constant battle uh, in, in that same vein for centralization versus decentralization, and you know, and, and a lot of the stuff that we're doing in you know, edge computing, for instance, and even AI is, you know, I want to try to, you know, move the decision making out to the, the place where it's closest <clears throat> contact with the data to the in, to the edge. Yeah. Right. And and I want to be able to, you know, you know, offload that that work from a, a central processing unit out to an edge processing unit so that, you know, I get the benefit of that that calculation or that determination out there at, at the, 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 the smartest edge and the lowest cost, uh, hopefully over time, right? And, uh, and so this, this idea of letting go has to do with, to me, what confidence do you have in you know, this system that's replacing the, the former system, right? And, and, and how do you know when you can, you can have enough trust to give that new system the authority to 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 handle what you you are reluctant, frankly, what, lack of better expression, yeah, right? And it it's a uh, obviously we do that in measure, and uh, over time we part of the challenge is to start relinquishing our perception of centralized and decentralized. When the more interesting systems emergent now are growing in a distributed fashion. And I, be, you know, beginning uh, with the uh, evolution of the internet, I, where I worked in the uh, early stages, I, I worked on the gateway structures between the local area networks and the IMPs, the uh, internet message processors. We take it for granted now. You just tap into the thing and you connect your local area network and you're connected to the uh, internet. Well, that, that didn't happen until the work we were doing uh, that put in the uh, gateway structures uh, in, into, uh, into doing that. 
but those networks, we was truly growing as inter-networking as protocols of distributed systems coming together, not centralized and not decentralized structures as much as highly distributed systems that we we're able to build trust in the processes of the network itself and relinquishing. And so for IoT, we put controllers and routers as close as possible to the edge so we can bring intelligence capture filter decisions to the edge as possible i can't make everything super smart but i can make something nearby super smart and uh, and connect with that so for both collecting and also decisioning i can't go to central go always go back to a central controller and command to get a decision made and nor can I always trust everything at the edge. And, and so it, it changes our architecture evolution, how we, how we grow things. I worked with the um, Nicholas and Giannis and the evolution of um, at least the come to market on Skype, for example. And here you have peer to peer, you have systems that are eminently scalable. Uh, we, I can build a system that uh, I don't have to build servers and infrastructure for because I'm putting the client to work on it. And so all I have to do is, is create systems that put the clients to work and I have uh, infinite scale as a, as a part of that kind of thing. So distributed systems evolve and grow differently from centralized systems. I don't know how that will fare in the cloud structures down the road, but as you know, the on-premise activity is changing. It is, and and yet, you know, when you, you think about, especially the, the discussion around the routers, uh, I, I had an incident, you know, a couple of days ago, frankly, that you know just recovered from, where one of my major carriers uh, did an upgrade to their systems, and uh, you know, and one of the things that goes into routers. Is, is a thing obviously called a route. Uh, and, uh, and one of my routes disappeared from their system, which shut down my phones, um, right? Which, you know, a little bit of a problem for us in the mortgage business. We kind of live and die by our phones. Uh, and it took us, you know, almost two days to get, you know, that particular carrier to agree that there was a problem and that it was probably on their end. And then once they found the problem, they're like, oh, you know what it is? We dropped a route. Uh, as soon as we put that back in the SIP, everything will, will come back up. I'm like, well, then why are you still talking to me? Why aren't you putting that route back in? Uh, right. And as soon as they did, you know, everything came back up. Yay. Uh, right. But that's that's one of those things that, that, frankly, it makes you wonder about that architecture, that that redundancy requirement. As we look, I love peer to peer because I think it, it gives you that redundancy in spades. And as you said, imminent scalability. Right, because it's just a, it's just a question of how far can you reach with the peer to peer, and how many machines are on at any given time. Um, you know, the bad guys use that. You know, as you know, part of the botnet swarm to come after guys like me with the DDoS attack. Uh, right, so you know, it's got its pros and its cons, but uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of untapped pros. I guess that's kind of back to where we started this conversation. There's a lot of possibilities in the kind of thinking that you're talking about where we're, we're skating to where the puck's going to be in the future. We're trying to fix problems that, 
that you know some of them we get, we haven't even encountered in in our current time frame. We're going to encounter them as we bring all these other things into systems online kind of view. So, uh, well, Doctor, and Tony, I'm in I'm in a ahead. program with uh, uh, that's on metaverse activity. Some really great thinkers in in uh, metaverse structures, although I'm hyper skeptical about the way most of them use the terminology and then go uh, at four o'clock to five o'clock on a Thursday and then at five o'clock join a group with uh, Vince Cerf on um, interplanetary internet and uh, already uh, allocating uh, internet protocols on uh, multiple systems on Mars already and trying to deal with what protocols and tolerance do you need for uh, dealing with planetary rotation and things like that for, for internet in, uh, interplanetary messaging. And then they brought out a, a whole session on interspecies communication that's, <clears throat> that's growing, how we set the semiotics and uh, for communication and exchange on interspecies structures. So, so many doors are opening up. I have uh, I've found one thing unique and I work at it. I've often been the oldest, simultaneously the oldest and the youngest person in the room. Uh, I've seen too many, especially in my students that are at their age and you can't be at your age in, um, in the 21st century. You have, to, uh, you have to have some types of the inside of the old, which I used to get from uh, history, uh, spending time in history, mm -hmm. and, uh, and retain the youthful challenge of a two-year-old that you, uh, every, the answer to every question is why. Uh, the answer to every answer is why uh, yeah. to what you offer going forward. Uh, to explore what, what is possible. And uh, I, it's true in business as well. Uh, last thing is um, that when I talk with the MBA students and MBA students are told by the uh, uh, strategy organization and management people, you define strategy and determine technology. And I said, that is absolutely stupid because technology changes strategic assumptions. And if you do that, I want to red hat you. I want to be uh, your enemy because I know that technology will change the assumptions of how that industry operates. And I want to be there to make it happen. Well, I appreciate that. You know, and I, I relate so much to what you're saying. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm almost 60, uh, not quite, but uh, almost 60. And, and I have and socks older than you. Uh, and I believe that, and, I, and you're probably wearing them, but, um, you know, I, I, I will say this, I come at the world the same way you do. I think that's one of the reasons why I love hanging out with you so much is I am very curious. I have never lost that, that childlike wonder, I guess. And, and at the same time, I love history and I read a lot and I'm always kind of contemplating, well, how does this all fit together? Uh, right. So, so I, I love the way you think about things, Dr. Ben, and I really appreciate you joining us on this podcast today. Uh, we, we are really at the edge of our window here. 
but not at the edge of our timeline. So you and I will continue to have conversations long after this, and hopefully other people will get a chance once in a while to tune into some of your great thinking. So thank you so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure, Walt. You're uh, always a facile thinker and uh, philosophy and creativity. I always enjoy interacting. Thank you, sir. Enjoyed your book in that fashion. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank, no problem. Thank you, Walt. Thank you, Ben. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today for the Higher Gear CIO podcast series on the future of work. We look forward to having you join us again. Thank you for joining us as we explored the conversation of the future of work with Walt Carter and Dr. Ben Kaczynski. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and look forward to having you join us for future topics at the Higher Gear CIO podcast.